church always said, yes, DJ, God can use you. And I'm so thankful for the privilege of being here. I'm thankful for your pastor's friendship. He's always been kind to me. His father is one of the mentors in my life. And I was excited several years ago when George shared with me in a private meeting that he was feeling a call to come and to lead this wonderful and historic church. Like many of you, I'm a child of Alabama, born and raised in the great metropolis of Montevallo. My father was a high school teacher and a coach and a bivocational pastor. I got saved in a little church in Bibb County, and then he pastored just outside of Montevallo in a small little community called Aldridge. In fact, when I think about Aldridge and I think about Christmas, I think about my favorite Christmas story involving the celebration of Christmas in church. Now, my family's heard this before, but you haven't heard it, and it's too good to keep to myself. At the Aldridge First Baptist Church, we did what every small Baptist church did that loves Jesus. We had a nativity, and the popular kid got to be Mary and Joseph. I didn't even make shepherd that year. I wasn't well-behaved enough in fact, they just had the preschoolers wear normal clothes. But when I was five years old in 1982, I was preoccupied with not Mary or Joseph. I did not want to be a shepherd or a sheep and certainly wasn't smart enough to be a wise man. I was a cowboy, baby. And so I had a little suit on and I had a cowboy hat and my mother let me wear it to the nativity. So all the preschoolers were sitting around the nativity as the older children acted out Luke chapter 2. And I remembered something about cowboys when they weren't gunfighting and riding horses and rescuing damsels in distress or fighting off the bad guys. Normally they looked really cool in their cowboy hats and all those Clint Eastwood movies had them usually smoking something. So in the middle of the nativity, while they were announcing the birth of Christ, I took a piece of straw, the exact length of a cigarette, I stuck it in my mouth, and I lit that baby up, and I started puffing. And I knew that to be a gentleman cowboy, the girl sitting next to me needed one, so I grabbed her one, and I broke it off, gave it to her, and I lit that bad boy up, and there we were, puffing at the nativity scene. And my mother, who was the bivocational pastor's wife and the leader of the nativity, was sitting on the front row guiding the children who were able to read the story. And she caught me out of the corner of her eye, puffing and pointing at the Jesus in the manger. And my mother had two voices. She had her pastoral wife's voice. God bless you. Good to see you today. And then she had the voice she used to communicate to me. It was more of a a predator, terminator type deal. And she looked at me, and in the same face that she was blessing the Lord Jesus for his birth, she said, I'm going to kill you. And you know, I got a lot of vices in my life, but I have never smoked past the whipping she gave me that day in my life. We celebrate Christmas all the time in church. But I want to ask you a question. Do we celebrate church in Christmas. I've been walking with my church through Colossians chapter 1 over the last few weeks because it is one of the most famous celebrations of Christology, of our understanding of who Christ is in all of the New Testament. On Paul's second missionary journey in a city called Ephesus, he led a man to Christ named Epaphras. Now, Epaphras was not from Ephesus, most scholars believe. He was from Colossus, the city that received the letter that we have today known as Colossians. Epaphras did what Christians should do. He went back to his hometown and he shared his faith. And people began 
to receive Christ. And a church was born. The church that received the letter we have today known as Colossians. And like many young churches, it did really well for a season, but then it lost its way. It lost its way in its understanding of who Jesus is because of some false teachers. And basically what they were doing was whittling away at the sufficiency of Christ. And Paul wrote the book of Colossians to address a lot of items, a lot of issues, a lot of agendas, but primarily he wanted them to know that when God gave us his son, he gave us everything we needed to live a life, to honor him, and to be the church that carries the gospel forward. In fact, if I were going to give this sermon a title, it would simply be, he is everything to his people. Read with me in Colossians chapter 1. I'll read aloud as you read silently in your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy or an app on your phone. Colossians chapter 1, and allow me this morning to begin reading in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then Paul turns his attention to the church when he says these words, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is everything to his people. One of the things that blows my mind around the Christmas season as we prepare for the new year is the reality of the incarnation. There's a theologian named Wayne Grudem, and he said this about the incarnation. He said the incarnation is by far the most amazing miracle in the entire Bible. He goes on to say, far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become a man and join himself to human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe, that God could dwell in man. And yet the fascinating thing is that the people that he has entrusted to make this message known are the incredible folks I'm looking at this morning, the church. Yet something has happened recently. I've noticed it as a pastor for over 20 years now. There seems to be a growing number of people who have church in their past, have some sort of profession or at least an allegiance to Christianity in their heritage and yet they become very adversarial to the church. We hear words like toxic leadership and worship war. We hear words about church hurt. Some people think the church has waded too far into politics and are critical of a movement called Christian nationalism. Others say the church is not taking a hard enough stand, and so they accuse the church of being woke. And then if you swing to the other end of the spectrum, the church becomes so legalistic that no one feels worthy enough to come into it. And 
what you find is that there's a growing number of people who would say, I was an evangelical Christian, I was a follower of Jesus, but I'm not anymore. And yet when you begin to dissect their divergence, when you begin to unpack their leaving, they very seldom take aim at Jesus, rather they take aim at the church and they blame the church. And yet what I see is I see a Bible that has a savior who loves his church. And I think church folk, you know, the kind of people that come on New Year's Eve, I think church folk ought to have a high view of church because you have a high view of the Savior. To see Christ in all of its glory is to see the glory and the honor bestowed to him only by his people. And this is interesting to me because this is exactly what Paul does. Several years ago, Lifeway released a study that said of all the times of the year when unchurched people are most likely to come to a church service, almost six out of 10 people who don't attend church regularly said that if they were invited to church during the Christmas and New Year season, they would say yes. What does that mean in a community like Birmingham, a community that was my home? It means that in the midst of a world of lostness, there are still a lot of people who understand some sense of reverence and connection between their life and the celebration of Jesus during this time of the year. And I think it's fascinating to take a step back and ask a question. We always celebrate Christmas in church, but do we celebrate the church in Christmas? That's what verse 18 does. In verse 18, after Paul has established Christ as the creator of the world and the sustainer of all things, he then turns his attention to Christ's special relationship to his people. I won't even put it on the screen, but you may remember in the Matthew account, that when the angel is telling Joseph that Mary is going to have the Lord Jesus, the last thing Mary, the angel says to Joseph is, and he will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? Well, it's the church. And look what Paul says about Jesus and the church in this one verse this morning, verse 18. Paul writes, and he is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. When you go into this next year as a follower of Jesus, and most of you in this room would identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. Many of you joining online, we're joining this morning because you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. There's a couple of ways you're going to reevaluate your life. Even in this week, I've reflected on my own. I've made notes on pieces of paper. I've typed things into my phone that I want to be more faithful about. Some people talk, call them resolutions. Other people set goals. And, and typically as a believer, we tend to be very personal. I, I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I, I need to reconcile this strained relationship. I want to be a better husband or a father, a mother or a wife, a, a student, a, a leader. And, and often we will then think about the outside world. I want to be a better witness. I, I want to honor Christ more in the workplace. I want to watch my language more diligently. I want to be more consistent in sharing the love of Christ with my neighbors. But there is a third category. How will your relationship to your church be different in 2024? 
Now, I'm not here this morning because your pastor has asked me to come and deliver a message to challenge you about fulfilling the vision of shades. That's his job, and I know he does it well. I'm here as a pastor and a follower of Christ to say that before you can even think about the deliverables, before you can even think about what you want to be as a more faithful church member, as a more faithful leader, as a more faithful servant, you have to back up and evaluate your perspective of the leader of the church. And this verse, if anything, reminds us of three eternal truths. Now I want to give those to you very quickly. It's important for us to remember when we think of Christ and his church, his position. He's the head. In fact, Paul does something here in this verse that he's not done before. Now, you're familiar with the metaphor of the church being the body of Christ. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. But here's one of the first places where in using that metaphor of a body, not an organization or a society with a president or a governor, but a body with a head, we find Paul referencing Christ as the head. Now, in the book of Ephesians, we see this language also. I'll put it on the screen. In Ephesians chapter 1, the scripture says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. So Christ is the leader and the head of the church. Now, why does that matter? That's not a new truth for many of you. You've been taught that for many years. Some of you, like me, who had the privilege of growing up in Sunday school, you've been instructed in the truths of the Word, and you've been taught doctrine from preschool, and you know that Christ is the head of the church. But there's great confidence in that, because one of the great enemies that people build up against the church is that they attack leadership some failed leader, some failed group, some failed organization. And when that happens, they're putting too much faith in the leadership of humans, and they're deflecting attention that ought to be drawn back to the head. He's the head. It's his church. He's the leader. Now, I'm not in the medical profession. I have friends that are, family members that are. Like many of you, I passed a few biology courses. This is what I know about any living being. Anything without a head is instantly dead. Anything without a head has no life. There are tremendous amounts of breakthroughs that happen annually to the incredible profession of medicine and what they can do to the body. Now they can transplant virtually every organ. Hadn't heard of any brain transplants. Got a few people in my life I'd sign up for if they offered. <laughs> Hadn't heard of any. Anything without a head is dead. This is why a pastor, a bishop, an elder is not the head of the church. Christ is the head. What does this mean? Well, push the metaphor. Paul certainly does. The head provides power. It is from the head that all of the organs take their cues and notion. Think about the greatest sport ever invented. Football, of course. Now, I'm a proud, proud Auburn graduate. Tough day yesterday. Maryland is a powerhouse. They're underrated. I hope they finish in the top four. But having played football all my life, this is what I know. 
You can take the biggest, strongest, most powerful athlete, and if he suffers a concussion, he's done. The concussion does not weaken his bicep. It does not slow his 40 time. It shuts down his ability to put his body in motion and to react in a split second, which is required at a game played at a high level, a violent game, a game built on brawn and strength, but is incredibly taxing mentally. And it's not just true for athletes. It's true for any person in this room. There's much you can do and lose the function of particular organs, but without your head, functioning correctly, the rest of your body is powerless. This is why I love going to work every day. I'm never worried that the church of the Lord Jesus is without power because he's the head. And not only is he the head, he promised that he would give us that power. I mean, think about some of the most familiar verses that churches like Shades are built on. The Great Commission, for example, in the end of the book of Matthew. What does Jesus say at the end of the book of Matthew in Matthew chapter 28? Look on the screen and I'll show you. He says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, why did it have to be given to Jesus if Jesus, according to verses 15, 16, and 17 of Colossians 1, is the creator and sustainer of all things? Well, because he laid it down. When he took upon flesh at Christmas, he laid down many of his attributes. When Jesus was here on earth, he couldn't be omnipresent. He was either in Bethlehem or Nazareth. And if he wanted to go from Capernaum to Nazareth, he had to do what you and I would have to do. He had to travel. So Jesus laid down much of his divine power in order to submit to death, even death on a cross. But upon his resurrection, having fulfilled the will of God, all that power and authority had been given to him with an extra measure of authority because after the resurrection, Jesus had conquered death, hell, and the grave. And his resurrection proves that. And then what does he do? He gives us the great commission. Go ye therefore and make disciples. A few pages later, right after Matthew and the other gospels end, in the beginning chapters of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, one of those great missionary passages, look what Luke writes. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Where's this power coming from? From the Holy Spirit. How can the Holy Spirit live in the church? The church must be made blameless. How can the church be made blameless? I sat today at a beautiful worship service and preach in front of people who no doubt are wonderful friends and neighbors and community leaders. But every man in this room and every woman in this room, like the one on this stage, is certainly a sinner. How can we be made blameless? By the application of the blood of Christ and the power that is displayed through the resurrection. And then upon his death and upon his resurrection, having paid the penalty of our sin, in our trust in him, we are declared to be blameless and he fills us with the power of the living God. So God in Christ has not left his church powerless. It breaks my heart to see churches in our landscape, even in this community, that are anemic, longing for power. It is not that God has abandoned his promise. It's that his people forget when shades got Jesus, shades got everything. You got everything. 
Everything you could ever need to transform your life and impact your family and win your loved ones and friends to Christ. Every power available to you is in Christ and he's the head of the church. So his position as the head gives us power. It also gives us protection. It also gives us protection. I mean, ultimately, my head is the one that sends signals to the rest of my body to take care of myself. I'll tell you what my brain's been telling me lately. Come January 2nd, the carbs have got to go. (laughs) It has been total debauchery in my life. Everywhere I turn, there is chocolate calling my name. And, and, and soft drinks filled with high fructose corn syrup that tastes so good with the chocolate and the pie and the chocolate covered peanut butter ball. Somebody give me a witness in this house. <laughs> but come January 2nd, I will have to cut those carbs. My head's making that decision because it knows the body carrying it does not need to get any bigger. When Christ is the head of the church, he provides his church the direction that it needs and the protection that it needs. Remember what Jesus said in the book of Matthew chapter 16? He said these words in Matthew 16. I'll put them on the screen. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, talking about the truth of the gospel, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There are a lot of people who would criticize the church. About a hundred years ago, a little over that, a guy named Spurgeon had a word for them. C.H. Spurgeon was asked about people being critical of the church. And you know what he said? It's such a good word. I'll put it on the screen for you. He says these words, the church is not perfect, but woe to the man who finds pleasure in pointing out her imperfection. Christ loved his church. Let us do the same. Spurgeon went on to say, I have no doubt that the Lord can see more fault in his church than I can and have equal confidence that he sees no fault at all because he covers her faults with his own love, that love which covers a multitude of sins, and he removes all of her defilement with the precious blood which washes away all the transgressions of his people. Can you be high church people? I don't mean stuck up. I don't mean holier than thou. I mean people who think the way your Savior thinks about his church. It doesn't mean you'll ever have a perfect church. And I can assure you that even the most trusted leaders will fail you at some point. I certainly have failed my people. It means that when your view of Christ as the head is correct, then you look at the bride of Christ the way he looks at the bride. There is one way for you to become my enemy instantly. I think pastors and Christian men ought to be kind, gregarious. We ought to be people who care. We ought to be people who are patient. We ought to be people who admit when we're wrong. We ought to be people who are not adversarial. We are to be peace-loving. But if you hurt or insult my bride, we are not going to be friends. It's just not going to happen. Because I don't know where my life ends and her life begins. She is, second only to my relationship with Christ, the most prized possession God has ever given me. And in my particular situation, she is the vehicle with which God blessed us with six beautiful children. 
So there is no person more important to me in my life here in this life than her. So for you to love her is you loving me. For you to care for her and respect her and be kind to her is for you to care and respect and be kind to me. In fact, you can do to me what you want, but do not hurt my bride. And I believe every husband in this room would share the same sentiment. Yet when you criticize church, when your commitment is lackluster, when you become jaded or cynical, when you don't promote a spirit of oneness, you are insulting the bride of your Savior, and his opinion of her is different. He says, I love her. I chose her. I'm coming back to get her. And until then, I'm going to give her everything she needs because I'm the head, and I will give her protection, and I'll give her providence. And when we think about his power and his protection and his providence, it's then important to remember that when we think of the church, it's, it's his possession. I've known a lot of bodies. My head's only been assigned to one. Look what verse 18 says. It says in Paul's words, he says, he is the head of the body, the church. He's not the head of a body, it's the body. If you scroll down to verse 20, look what he says. And through him to reconcile to himself. In other words, we're not saved generally. We're saved specifically to him. When, when it's his body and we're owned by him, then his identity becomes ours. Think about it in three ways. When you think about his body forming our identity, you tend to think about it as concrete and connected. You know who I've never seen? Jesus. Never seen him. Never seen Jesus. I've never heard him speak in an audible voice to me. I speak to him every day. I certainly have had him speak to my heart, but I've never heard an audible voice and I've never seen him. I will one day and I look forward to that. But I've known countless Christians who spoke to me in his name. The church makes Jesus concrete to the world. We are the hands and feet. You'll hear people say, Birmingham needs to hear about Jesus. Lovingly, I disagree. I think Birmingham's heard about Jesus for years. I think Birmingham needs to see Jesus. And the only Jesus Birmingham's gonna see until his return is the Christ in his church. Because the folk in your life that don't know the Lord, they don't live next to Jesus. They live next to you. They're not sitting in class next to Jesus. They go to class with you. They're not on the team with Jesus. They're on the team with you. They don't work with Jesus. They work with you. And yet it is Christ in you that is the hope of the world, which means that we're not only concrete, but we're connected to one another. We're diverse. We're all different, yet we're dependent on each other. And we're alive and we're active. We're, we're moving, we're growing and going together as his body. We belong to him. And that leads, of course, to the last thing I would remind you. When it comes to the church, it's important to remember his position. He's the head. It's important to remember his possession. We belong to him. But finally, it's important to remember his preeminence. 
That's the whole point of the verse. Read verse 18 with me again. It'll be the last time I ask you to read it with me. He says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. And I love this. He's the beginning. Now, if you like to study your Bible, this is important. The beginning of what? Well, if you read verses 15, 16, and 17, and you exegete out the meaning, he was the beginning of all things in that by him all things were created. So he was the beginning of creation. But by the time we get to verse 18, he's the beginning of the new creation. What's the new creation? What's the Bible say? Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. What's the old kingdom? The old kingdom, the kingdom that fell to sin will be replaced by a new kingdom. Remember John's vision? He saw a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And the beginning of all those things is not the second coming of Christ. The beginning of all those things was the first coming of Christ. When he stepped into our world on that Christmas night, he was the beginning of something new. And it culminated in his birth, led to his life, ended in his death, and began again in his resurrection, which is why the verse ends where I'll end. Paul says in verse 18 these words, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And Paul, as he pictures this idea of being firstborn from the dead, this is where he says that in everything he might be preeminent. He's first, he's supreme, he's number one, and there's not even a close second. Why? Why in everything is he preeminent? Well, what did Paul say? Paul said, because he's the firstborn from the dead. He's not the firstborn. Thousands, arguably millions of people lived before Jesus was born. He's not even the first person to die. Many people died before Jesus, and many people continue to die today. And if he does not return in my life, I will die. Jesus is not even the first to be resurrected. Before his arrest, he raised Lazarus from the dead. So why is he the firstborn from the dead? Well, you seen Lazarus lately? I haven't. You know why? Because years, maybe decades after his great resurrection there, he died again. He's gone. His spirit is with the Lord. His body is long since decomposed. Jesus is the firstborn because he's the first ever to die, be resurrected, never to die again. And every other person in Christ will experience the same resurrection. Think about it. How'd you get here? A womb. How will you leave here? A tomb. But because of Jesus, will it end there? No. Jesus came into this world through a womb. Jesus left this world through a tomb and neither one could hold him. The womb held him until he was ready to be born. The tomb held him after the price of death and sin and hell were paid, but it could not hold him past Easter Sunday morning. It was borrowed. Joseph got it back. And my tomb will not hold me. In fact, when there's all this confusion among the disciples, Jesus says in the book of John these words. I'll leave you with them. He says in the book of John 14, verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. That's his nice way of saying I'm about to be killed. But you will see me, he's gonna raise, and because I live, you will live. You know why I'm going to heaven? 
Well, it's not because I was born and raised in the great state of Alabama, though that's a good start. It's not because I'm a pastor or a husband or a father. It's not because I try to be a nice person. I'm going to heaven because he lives. And because he lives, I will live. This is the great teaching of the resurrection. Paul fleshes it out in the Corinthian letters. He says in the book of Corinthians, I'll put it on the screen, these simple words to you and me. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he's the first. And by default, if there's a first, there must be a second. The chronology of the language demands it. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruit, same word in Colossians, the first fruits of the dead, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And remember on that great Sunday when John was worshiping on the Isle of Patmos as recorded in Revelation chapter one? Remember he said, and on the Lord's day I was worshiping and I got caught up in the spirit. Do you know what the scripture says in Revelation one? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Notice the language. I thought I was dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. The first and the last in the Greek is alpha and omega. That's where we get that alpha and omega. He says, I died. Jesus died. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Now watch this. And I have the keys of death and Hades. That's the head of this church. He is preeminent. So it's good to celebrate church and New Year's and Christmas. But as you celebrate New Year's and Christmas in the church, make sure you celebrate the church in your Christmas. Have a high view of who he is and you'll always find yourself in the right place to be what he calls you to be as the people of Christ in this community. My confidence in this wonderful, historic blessing of a church is not in you. As good and kind and faithful as many of you have been for many years, my confidence is in your leader and he lives. And because he lives, we have the power to be everything God has called us to be. Whether we're at Church at the Mill in Spartanburg, South Carolina, or whether we're here at Shades Mountain Baptist Church, we have everything in him. And that, my brothers and sisters, is who he is to his people. Now, let me be pastoral for just a moment. Anytime somebody distances themselves from church, they typically are critical in one of two directions. They either criticize themselves and say, well, you know, I should be more committed. I, we tried a small group. It was awkward. I, 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 I want to help. I'm scared to death they're going to throw me in there with the three-year-olds. You know, they're hellions at every Baptist church. Right now, there's a hostage situation going on down there, and the only hope is the cup of goldfish and one of you showing up in a minute to get your kid. People tend to be critical of themselves. I need to do more. I should give more. I should serve more. Or they're critical of others. I tried to serve. I, I, I got into that. I, I got involved and I saw the way. But in both cases, whether you're critical of yourself or you're critical of some group somewhere, some church, some leader that hurt you, our focus is off. 
It's not about you. It's not about them. It's about him. And long before this church was ever built, long before 1907 when this church began, long before you or I were ever born, a warrior king descended the steps of heaven and took on the form of a man and gave his life to deliver the gospel that is the world's only hope. And then he did something fascinating. He handed the gospel to his people. And he says, until I come back, you be me to this world. I'll be the head. I'll give you the power. I've given you the gospel. I've given you my word. Go live in my power and watch me do through your lives, corporately and individually, something so great that I get the glory for it. And then on that day when you're called home or he comes back, we will join millions from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and we will march into that celestial city called Zion and those white robes will be unfolded and handed out representing our lack of any sin not because we were sinless but because the sinless one has taken it all away and all disease and all cancer and all sorrow and all sickness and all death will be gone Every eye will be cleared of any tear and there will be no more suffering or strain or hurt. And in that moment, whether we be 17 or 77 sitting here this morning, in that moment, we will say, whatever I did in your church was so worth it. I'm thankful that you are everything to your people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the opportunity to study just one verse. Thank you for this church, this church's pastor and the men and women around him. Thank you for what they've stood for for years under great leadership. Thank you for your legacy. But legacy is in the past. 2024 awaits them. It is merely hours away. And in this room this morning are no doubt leaders who have the power and the influence to be a force of Holy Spirit power in and through this church, if they would submit to you. And yet, no doubt, there are others who would say, man, I'm so far from where I need to be. I barely got here this morning. If that's you and you listen to this message, you have every invitation that any committed Christian in this room does to join the people of God and to be used, to be poured out that your life may make a difference. Whether you be a weary mother, a half committed guy, someone who feels sick and dirty because of the sin you've allowed into your life. Friend, I want you to know, however you choose to define yourself does not have to be your identity in 2024. The same Jesus, who is head of the church, tenderly, lovingly, and willingly waits on any sinner to repent and turn to him. And my prayer is that as we sing about his great hope, you would do that. Father, you bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.